Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And I invite you to please open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. So Ephesians 4, verses 25 to to 32. And so let me (coughs) remind us of where we've been and where we are in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, the first half of this letter, um, really lay the foundation, the theological and, uh, and doctrinal foundation of all that God has done and is doing and promises to do in us through Christ. And Paul has laid that out for us. And then whenever we enter into the second half of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul begins to to tell us about all of the applications and implications that flow out of this this theological foundation of all that that God has done and is doing and promises to do in us um, through Christ in the first half of the letter. And so last week, Paul called us to, to remember who, who we were, who we were before God saved us in Christ, who we were. And what he says is, remember who you were and put that off, put that away. Realize that's, that's not who you are now. And as he puts it, you must no longer walk or live as the Gentiles do. You must no longer walk or, or live as you once lived in the futility of their minds. Because that's who you were. And that's not who you are now. So, so put off your old self. Put off the old man. Put off the old man who was in Adam, who belongs to your former manner of life, and put on the new man, the new self. The, the, the new man who's no longer in Adam, but who's in Christ. In Christ, who we are united to by faith. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul says, remember who you were. Leave that behind. Don't go back to it. Be who you are now in Christ. Now, last week's passage was, it was, it was challenging. But it also was still, if we're honest, a bit general and a bit overarching. I will tell you that today's passage, Paul no longer stays general and kind of overarching. In today's passage, he gets very specific. For many of us, maybe even all of us, he gets very personal. That that some of us might say that that in this passage that we're looking at today, Paul moves from preaching to, to meddling. I'm not even sure it's possible for a Christian to to read this passage, take it seriously, and really not be deeply challenged by it, deeply convicted by it. And so before I read the passage to us, let me, let me give us a few things to keep in mind as, as we hear it and as we think through it, things to help us understand what Paul is saying. He's going to challenge us to, to evaluate our, our holiness regarding our everyday relationships. We'll get very specific. Our everyday relationships, our our friendships, our marriages, our families, you know, life inside of our homes, life inside of this this church. It's very specific, very personal. See, he's calling us to to pursue holiness, and holiness is never, it's never lived in a vacuum. It's never lived in isolation. See, the Christian life must be lived in the real world. 
with other people. Must be lived out in relationships, in, in churches, in homes, in families, in marriages, in friendships. Also, you're going to notice that Paul gives us five specific examples, and all five examples include a sinful behavior to put off, okay, and a positive command to put on, or a vice to put off, and a, and a godly Christ-honoring, Christ-like virtue to put on. And in each of these five examples, Paul gives either an implied or explicit theological reason or motivation for why we should put off that specific sin and why we should put on that specific obedience. And so simply put, if, if you're a Christian, what Paul's saying is that you have been born again to new life in Christ. Therefore, we are to put off, we are to put to death everything that is unlike Christ, and we are to put on or take up that which is Christ-like, as we are conformed more and more into his image. So it's, it's not merely put this off, and it's not merely put this on, but it's, it's put this off and put this on. As the early church father, John Chrysostom, put it, what good is it to weed a garden if we do not plant good seed? To be free from a bad habit does not mean we have formed a good one. We need to take the further step of forming good habits and dispositions. Or as John Stott put it, it's not enough to put off the old rags. We have to put on new garments. As Pastor Sinclair Ferguson says, the basic principle is that growing in grace involves both displacement putting off of sinful habits and lifestyle and replacement, putting on of Christ-like, by Christ-like graces and habits. And it's important that, that you hear this now, and I'll remind you of it towards the end, and I hope you'll keep thinking about it throughout the whole sermon, but none of this is to earn God's favor and forgiveness and love. None of this is, hey, put this stuff off and put this stuff on so that God will forgive you. So that he'll save you. You know, if you work hard enough at putting this off and putting this on, and if you're consistent enough for long enough, then God will love you. And he'll begin to, no, Paul says, the only way, put this off and put this on, because that's not who you are now, and this is who you are. He says, put this off and put this on, because it's already yours in Christ. He simply says, be who you are now. So with that in mind, hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. I'll begin reading in Ephesians 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that we may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. 
Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love for our good. We're going to look at this passage under five headings, which are the, the five specific examples that Paul gives us of putting something off and putting something on. And so we're going to see, he says, put off lies and instead speak the truth. He says, put off sinful anger and instead keep short accounts. He says, put off stealing and instead work hard to share generously. Put off corrupting talk and instead use your words to build others up. Put off bitterness and unkindness and instead be kind and forgive. Amen. You can close your Bibles, go home, just, just, do, just begin to do this stuff. Just do it. Now, I mean, every one of us in this room, we, we know what all of those words mean. And my guess is every one of us would say, you know what, Richard, you're right. You know, I ought to live this way. Maybe even most of us would admit, you know what, I, I don't live this way, but I want to live this way. Well, Paul is going to walk us through this. And remember, he's not just telling us, put this off and put this on. But he attaches some reasons behind this, some motivation, some, some theological reasons for how this is the case and why this ought to be the case. So first, put off lies and speak the truth. Look at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. He says, therefore, or for this reason, because of everything I've been saying, because you are not who you once were, because you are now in Christ, therefore, for this reason, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for remember, we are members of one another. So he says, put off, put away falsehood, half-truths, lies, and instead, speak the truth to one another. Earlier in, in, this, in this chapter, in Ephesians 4, verse 15, Paul exhorts us to speak the truth in love to one another. And here he's urging us to do the same. He's going to have more to say about, about our words, about our speech, even later in this passage. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? Why should we do this? Do you see the reason? For we are members of one another. I mean, yes, we're members of, of the one church. We're members of one spiritual family. But even more intimate than being a, the members of, of one church or of a family, we're members of one body. We're members of one another. I mean, the members of one body, that's the metaphor that Paul uses over and over again throughout Ephesians. I mean, we are that, that profoundly connected to one another. We're that deeply connected to one another in Christ. We're members of the same body. We are members of one another. And we all know that for our physical bodies, we need all of our body's members and parts and, and organs functioning properly for us to be healthy. Well, Paul's exhortation is to put away falsehood, put away half-truths, put away lies, and instead speak the truth to one another because falsehoods and half-truths and deception and hypocrisy and lies are all like viruses and diseases that, that enter the body of Christ and do great harm to our fellowship with one another and our unity 
you know, the very unity of the Spirit which we are to be eager to maintain in the bond of peace. And so, friends, as we prepare to come to this table, it's important for us to, to take this seriously and to ask ourselves, search our own hearts and say, you know, in what way do I need to put away falsehood and to begin to speak the truth in love to one another? See, Paul says we're all to take this seriously because we are members of one another. Second, he says, put off sinful anger and instead keep short accounts. And so he moves from the words on our lips in verse 25 to the anger in our hearts in verses 26 and 27. Now, these two verses, they're very simple. I mean, once again, the youngest child in this room who can read can read them and, and tell you more or less what they mean. But they may be two of the most challenging and convicting verses to actually live out in all of the Bible. I mean, for some, for some of us, Paul's putting his finger with these two verses on that which is the greatest problem in our relationships. In verse 26, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. There's a lot here in these verses. First, he says, be angry and do not sin, which is an echo of Psalm 4, verse 4. Be angry, do not sin. So there's an imperative there. But, but please don't understand this really as, as a command to be angry. Rather, Paul's emphasizing two things. One, it is right to be angry about some things. It is angry to be, it's right to be angry about the right things. But secondly, our anger can very easily, very quickly, and all too often become sinful anger. So let's think about these two things. First, it's right to be angry about some things. Specifically, it's right to be angry about the right things, in the right way, for the right reasons. Right, for example, in John chapter 2, Jesus was rightly filled with righteous, godly, sinless, holy anger whenever he entered the temple. And he saw the money changers and the livestock and, and the buying and the selling. And he made the whip of cords and drove them out of the temple. You know, John Stott says, there's a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. We human beings compromise with sin in a way in which God never does. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant. Angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, his people should hate it too. If evil arouses his anger, it should arouse ours also. Right? It's right to be angry about some things, about the right things in the right way for the right reasons. Angry about things that, that anger God, but, but we should all acknowledge that our anger can very easily, very quickly, all too often become sinful anger. When we're not angry about the right things in the right way for the right reasons. Therefore, we will be wise to remember and maybe even memorize what James says in James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I think that's why Paul qualifies his imperative, be angry, with three negatives. So listen for them again in verses 26 and 27. Be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. 
So let's think through each of these. First, do not sin in your anger. What that means is that we need to begin to evaluate ourselves honestly and ask ourselves, okay, why am I angry? Why am I angry here? What's the cause of this? Am I angry about the right thing? Should I be angry about this? Am I angry about this in the right way? To the right degree? For the right reason? Am I angry at the offense of sin to God's glory? Or, if I'm honest, am I really angry because my own pride has been wounded? Am I really angry because I feel like I've been disrespected? Am I really angry because I feel embarrassed? Because I feel mistreated? Am I angry in the right way? Am I restrained in my anger? Or am I giving full vent to it? You know, is my anger unhinged? Is it out of control? Next, Paul says, do not let the sun go down your anger. Now, this, this is not to be taken so literally that if you, you know, if you move to Alaska or Greenland and you've got like a whole season of the year, you know, you can let your anger kind of just fester and, and, and simmer. Okay, that's not Paul's point. Paul's point is to warn us of the danger of letting the embers of our anger smolder and fester and turn into deep resentment and destructive bitterness. You see, it's it's to a man's glory to overlook an offense. But whenever we try to overlook the offense and we can't overlook it, then we've got to deal with it. If we don't deal with it, it doesn't just go away. We can't, it's not going to be sufficient to just stuff it down. Someone asks you, are you okay? And you say, yeah, no, everything's fine. When you know it's really not fine. Listen, it's going to make things worse. Those embers are going to smolder. At some point, that fire is going to be a raging fire. It's going to fester. It's going to make things worse. Listen to how William Barclay puts it. The longer we postpone mending a quarrel, the less likely we are to ever mend it. The longer it's left to flourish, the more bitter it will grow. If we have been in the wrong, we must pray to God to give us grace to admit that it was so. And even if we have been right, we must pray to God to give us the graciousness which will enable us to take the first step to put matters right. And if we don't, look at what Paul says in verse 27. And give no opportunity to the devil. It's a serious warning. Paul's warning us against the devil having a foothold in your life, in your relationships with one another, in your marriage, in your family. Satan loves it whenever our anger smolders and festers. He loves it whenever minor offenses, minor misunderstandings, simple disagreements grow into something bigger, grow and develop and metastasize into into major battles. It's important for us to realize that this is exactly what happens, right? Minor offenses that that we try to overlook but we can't, they just won't go away. They grow. 
They smolder, they fester. You see, Satan wants you to never, ever, ever forget an offense. <laughs> he wants you to always keep a long record of wrongs. He never wants you to forget. He never wants you to forgive. He never wants you to forgive that offense, regardless of how slight it was. Or even if there's a chance, a possibility, it was just imagined. If it was only assumed. And when you do, it does great harm to others in those relationships. But you know what? It does the most harm to you. It does the most harm to you. Listen to this quote. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun at first. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you're giving back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you're wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at that feast is you. So Paul gives us these warnings. He says, put a limit on your anger. Right? Don't let the sun set on it. Don't encourage it. Don't feed it. Don't let the, the embers smolder. You know, when we allow our anger to linger or to grow, Paul says we're giving the devil a foothold in our lives, in our relationships, in our marriage, in our families. He says, don't, Paul says, don't do it. Keep short accounts. You take the first step. Are we okay? I don't think we're okay. Can we talk about this? I was, I was hurt by this. I was offended by this. Let's talk about this. Seek to be reconciled to one another. Forgive one another. See, what Paul's saying is, and don't delay. I mean, do it today. Don't put it off. Put off your putting off of dealing with it. And keep short accounts. So he says, put off lies and instead speak the truth. Put off sinful anger and instead keep short accounts. Thirdly, he says, put off stealing and instead work hard in order to share generously. So look at verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, the eighth of the Ten Commandments is you shall not steal. But notice, and you shouldn't steal, okay? If, if, if you're stealing, stop stealing. Okay, if you're thinking about stealing something, don't steal it. Okay, don't steal. But notice that Paul goes further. Yes, put off stealing. Let the thief no longer steal. But there's also something for the former thief who's now in Christ to do. Put on or let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Right, that is the former thief who's now in Christ is put off stealing and to put on to take up Earning an honest living to provide for yourself, to provide for your family. But then keep looking at verse 28, Paul goes even further. The, the former thief who's now in Christ is to not only support himself and his family, but he's to work hard, doing honest work with his own hands, not just to provide for himself, which is good and godly and right. He's to work hard, to, not only to, to just grow his savings account, which is good and godly and responsible, 
He's to work hard and not just to, to buy a new car, which is perfectly fine to do. He's to work hard but, and not just to, to buy a new house, which is perfectly fine to do. Nothing wrong with that. He's to work hard and not just to, to buy a second home. There's nothing wrong with that. Perfectly fine. But he's to work hard to be able to share generously with anyone in need. As John Stott puts it, and none but Christ can transform a burglar into a benefactor. A new creation. Put off the old man. Put away the old man. No longer walk like you used to walk. But walk in newness of life. Created in the likeness of God. In true righteousness and holiness. So he says, put off lies and instead speak the truth. Put off sinful anger and instead keep short accounts. Put off stealing and instead work hard in order to share generously. Fourthly, put off corrupting talk. And instead, use your words to build others up. Okay, so here, Paul moves from the use of our hands to put off theft, to take up honest work, and he moves back to the use of our lips. And along with putting off sinful anger and keeping short accounts, these verses are very, very challenging, very, very convicting. And so listen to verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now that Greek word translated corrupting, it means worthless, bad, decaying, rotten. You know, it's used in ancient literature to refer to, to rotten, uh, putrid fruit, right, which is spoiled and, and gone bad. And I mean, I, I don't want to gross any of us out, but this is, this is a gross word. And so, I mean, you know what that's like. You open the fridge and you, you pull out the drawer and you see that piece of fruit that is, you know, maybe it was supposed to be red and now it's, you know, green or blue or it's something else. And it, you know, and, and, that, and that, that aroma hits you. And then, and if you're me, you, you know, you, Lily, Savannah, somebody come here. I need some help. But what Paul says is that we know what that smells like. That we need to realize that that's the aroma of our words when we are given to this corrupting talk. That's the aroma of our words. But the challenge is that we can't always smell it. I mean, we know, we know that type of corrupting talk. We know that smell whenever it's coming from someone else. and We hear it from them, don't we? But it's so often we can ignore it whenever it's coming out of our mouth. Or as David Strain puts it, our ears are much less attuned to the sound of corrupting talk when it comes from our own mouths. So look again at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do you understand what this means? I mean, on the one hand, it means that our words, whenever they're corrupting words, corrupting talk, they can be so rotten and decaying, nasty. But there's, there's a potential for them to be you know, just the opposite. Do you see this? Not just neutral. I mean, 
we don't speak really neutral words that Paul is saying they can be, it can be corrupting talk or it can be used by God to build others up. It can be, your words can be, actually be a means of grace in, in someone's life. Right? What Paul's saying is our words have great power. They, they matter, every one of them. And so he's saying, you know, put off corrupting, rotten talk and instead realize the power that your words have and make it your aim to use your words intentionally to build others up, right? Intentionally, as fits the occasion, which means you're thinking about that person in that specific situation. What do they need to hear? What is going to bless them? What fits the occasion? What is going to serve them the best? You're intentionally thinking about them. Now, now that doesn't mean that you, you, you're just given to flattery, you're giving to, to telling them what they want to hear. You're telling them what they need to hear. You're speaking the truth in love, even if it's a hard word. But it's going to be saturated in love, even if it's going to be a challenging word. It's going to be spoken in love for their good, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. See, friends, I mean, do you realize the power that your words have in the lives of other people. Hey, parents, do you realize that? Grandparents, I mean, do you realize this? Spouses. Now, I'm going to run through several verses, and, and listen, these verses, they're going, to both, they're going to both challenge us in a lot of ways, but they're also going to cast a vision, I hope, for, for what our words can be what our speech can be. And so I don't share these words you know, to, to just to beat you up. I share, I share these verses to, to lead us all to repentance. And that we would, have a, we, we would desire to put off and to put on and all the while that we would remember that there, there's more grace in Christ than there is sin in our mouths and in our hearts. And so Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue death and life right the tongue can kill someone's hopes and dreams the tongue can can burn a relationship down to the ground or the tongue can speak words of life into another person's hurting heart to what seems to them as an impossible situation proverbs 12 18 there's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts but the tongue of the wise brings healing let me think about that I mean, for many of us, for far too many of us, our marriages and our families know what those sword thrusts feel like. You know, I, I can hardly remember, you know, any of the well-thought-out words and calls and notes and, and, and email encouragements I've been blessed to receive in my life. And there have been many, many of them from you. But I'll never forget some of the, the rash words that I've said to others, and that I, they've been said to me. Because they leave wounds like sword thrusts, right? Our words are not neutral. They're either like you know, razor blades, daggers flying out of our mouths into the, to the hearts of others, leaving wounds and scars long after the words have, have, have faded away from our ears, or our words can bring healing and life. Proverbs 12, 25 Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Right? Good, wise, thoughtful words can dispel another's anxiety and lift a heavy burden that they're carrying around in their heart. 
Proverbs 15.4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but per- perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Right, Gentle, wise, good, thoughtful words like a tree of life, but perverse, false, corrupting, lying words can break a person's spirit. So Paul says in verse 29 of our text, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may may give grace to those who hear. That our words, they can corrupt. They can rot, they can decay, that they can burn the relationship down to the ground. Or that they can build others up and actually be instruments of God's grace to those around us. I mean, brothers and sisters in Christ, I mean, God has placed us in each other's lives that we may speak the truth in love, that we may be instruments of God's grace to one another. I mean, isn't that a remarkably wonderful image? You're being so intentional with our edifying words that were used by God to be instruments of grace in each other's lives, to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Well, next, Paul says the alternative is that our speech, this corrupting talk, can actually grieve the Holy Spirit. Look look at verse 30, and notice it begins with a conjunction and, and and that word is in the original Greek text, which I think links verse 29 and 30 together. Verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And John Stott says, it's not immediately clear why Paul now introduces the Holy Spirit, but since he is the Holy Spirit, he's always grieved by unholiness. And since he is the one Spirit, disunity will also cause him grief. In fact, anything incompatible with the purity or unity of the church is incompatible with his own nature and therefore hurts him. One might add that because he is also the Spirit of truth through whom God has spoken, He is upset by all our misuse of speech. Okay, and look at verse 30 and notice that it's possible to grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can be grieved and distressed, made sorrowful by our sin. And that's one of the clearest examples in the New Testament that we are to always remember that the Holy Spirit is a person. Not an impersonal force. It's a person. Someone who can be grieved. And notice that you, dear Christian, were sealed with the person of the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption at your conversion. This is not something that happens to you later. This is not some special second work of the Spirit in the life of some believers. The Holy Spirit unites all Christians to Christ by faith at our conversions. As Paul taught us in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That the Holy Spirit seals us for the day of redemption. That he's the guarantee of our inheritance. And Paul's point is that when we sin against one another in our corrupting, rotten speech, we deeply grieve this Holy Spirit. And so may, it never, may, may we never be indifferent to how we speak to one another. And how we speak about one another. And may we never be indifferent to, to grieving the person of the Holy Spirit. Who is the, depo- the guarantee of our inheritance in Christ. And so Paul says, put off lies and instead speak the truth. Put off sinful anger and instead keep short accounts. Put off stealing and instead work hard in order to share generously. 
He says, put off corrupting talk and instead use your words to build others up. And then lastly, he says, put off bitterness and unkindness and instead be kind and forgive. So look at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So let's quickly look at this, this list of vices that Paul gives us. Bitterness, the, the self-pitying reaction to things not going our way, especially when we have been sinned against by others or we feel like we've been sinned against and wronged by others. You see, bitter people, they can do great harm to those around them. But just like angry people, they most often do the most damage to themselves. Perhaps you've heard the saying that bitterness is the poison that you drink and then hope the other person dies. Then there's wrath and anger, which are, are linked together. That Greek word translated wrath literally means burning. And it expresses you know, violent outbursts of, of anger and fury. Then we have the word clamor, another word related to anger and flows out of anger, referring to, to shouting in anger. Then there's slander. You know, more of this corrupting talk, you know, ill speech, lies, half-truths, false testimony against someone's reputation or character. Then you have malice, a word for evil in general. So Paul says, put all of this away. He said, this is not who you are now. There are other things you are to be instead of being bitter and wrathful and angry and given to clamor and slander and, and malice. And so look at verse 31 and verse 32 together. And before I read them, Pastor Richard Phillips says that, that there's a relationship between the list of vices in verse 31 and the virtues in verse 32. And he says that, the, the, that they, they match up perfectly, but they're in inverse, reverse order. And so he says, we read verse 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Verse 32, be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So if Richard Phillips is right, that means that when Paul says put off clamor, put off shouting at one another in anger, put off slander, the, the ill speech and spreading lies about one another, he says instead be kind to one another. To put off wrath and anger and instead be tenderhearted, be, be compassionate towards one another. You'll put off bitterness and instead, forgive one another. Okay, at this point, maybe you say, okay, Richard, I understand that. I, I see that. And I would rather, I would give, give, me, give me kindness and tenderheartedness and, and forgiveness over you know, bitter, bitterness and, and, and anger and wrath and clamor and slander and malice. Yeah, yeah, give me verse 32, not verse 31. But Richard, the problem is, you know, it's not easy to be kind. It's not easy to be tenderhearted. Richard, the truth is, it often feels like the hardest thing in the world to forgive someone. And friends, Paul knows that. He really he knows that. So, I mean, look again at verse 32. See, Paul's not simply telling you to man up, to woman up, and to, to just do it, to just get over it, to just stuff it all down and pretend to be nice and kind and compassionate. That's not what he's saying. Look at verse 32. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And then he gives us an objective and deeply theological reason to be kind 
and tenderhearted and to extend forgiveness to one another. As God in Christ forgave you. He says the reason is not because of how you feel, but because of what Christ has done for you. What he's accomplished for you in his life, death, and resurrection. See, the reason is the gospel of God's amazing grace for a sinner like you. And not just who you were, but even who you are now. The way God loves you and forgives you in in such an extravagant way. That the the more clearly you understand this, the more deeply you understand this, you let the, the person of the Holy Spirit enable you, empower you to extend grace and forgiveness and compassion, which you've experienced from God in Christ to those around you. See, Paul's saying, listen, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He's not saying, hey, do all of this so then God will love you. He's saying, do all of this because he's already forgiven you in Christ. You already have a new calling. He said, you've already been called to, to, to a new hope that belongs to your call. Live in light of it. No longer walk as you once walked in the futility of your thinking. He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. He says, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, Paul says, remember Christ and all he suffered in your place to bear the full penalty that your sins deserve. He says, remember Christ suffered bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, all forms of malice in your place during his earthly ministry and on Calvary's cross so that God in his great kindness and compassion and mercy and love and grace could forgive you of all your sins. And Paul says, do not forget how utterly unworthy of kindness and compassion and forgiveness you are, yet God forgives you in Christ. And yet God loves you, really loves you, and yet he, he counts you as righteous in his sight. He adopts you into his family. And so Paul keeps saying these same things passage by passage in the second half of Ephesians, and I hope you're beginning to get the point. You see, when, when all that God has done for us in Christ is, is clearly before us, and it's big and it's bright before our eyes and our minds and our hearts. Then the Holy Spirit works through the love of God for sinners like us in Christ to enable us to let our sin go. To put our sin off. To put it away. To put it to death. And to put on who we are now. To be who we are now that we're new creations. To put on this and press into this new self, recreated after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And no one does this perfectly. Right? That's why we have to keep being reminded of these things. That's why we have to keep trying. That's why we have to keep repenting. That's why we have to keep remembering that, you know what, there, there's grace for us. There's grace for you. There's more grace in Christ than there is sin in your heart. Then there is sin in your in, in, in your mouth, in your lips, in your speech. Then there is anger in your heart. You see, and this table before us reminds us of this. It reminds us of just how much God in Christ has forgiven us. And it reminds us of how our God continues to love us 
and to provide for us. And how he continues to spiritually nourish our souls. And this table reminds us that God will bring all of his people all of the way home. And that even for us, even for you, dear Christian, there will be a seat for you at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.